WLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at WVEW.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections, on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio, SoundCloud, and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and the guests and not the radio station. Um, I'm Kelly Juno, and I am here with... My name is Anna Milani, and we um, are both educators. I'm a current student at UMass Amherst and also a local educator. And last week's show was on the Amazon strikes, so if you missed that show, you can hear that on our Facebook or podcast. And today we are very lucky to have in the studio two award-winning poets. We have with us Martina Spada and Lauren Marie Schmidt. And as we are all teachers here, we're going to be talking about poetry and writing and how it can be used as tools to teach about social conditions and to help students critically analyze the world around them. Martin uh, Espada is known as the People's Poet. Amongst many awards he has won, he just recently received the 2018 Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, which is sponsored by the Poetry Foundation. This award honors a U.S. living poet for outstanding achievement in poetry. Martin is the first Latino poet to win it since its inception in 1986. And he is also a professor at UMass Amherst in the English department. His latest collection of poems is entitled Vivas to Those Who Have Failed. Lauren Marie Schmidt is a poet and teacher, and she's teaching English at Bay State Academy in Springfield, Massachusetts. She is also an award-winning poet. She's published four collections of poetry and is currently working on a young adult novel. Her latest collection of poems is called Filthy Labors, in which she draws on personal observations from teaching creative writing at a transitional shelter for homeless mothers in New Jersey. So we want to welcome you both to the studio. We uh, are so honored to have you both here, and um, thank you for coming all the way up to Brattleboro. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. So, Martin, we're going to start with you. Uh, we're coming up on the anniversary of Hurricane Maria, and uh, we know you have a, a poem entitled Letter to My Father. If you want to introduce that uh, and read that for us. I will indeed. Um, first of all, I was struck by the fact that coming down Main Street uh, this afternoon in Brattleboro, I noticed, uh, of all things, a Puerto Rican flag. Um, I was not expecting to see that. And I, I asked my hosts, and it turns out that the Puerto Rican flag is there uh, because um, it recognizes the uh, devastation in Puerto Rico, that it, uh, the flag found its way to Main Street after Hurricane Maria. Um, and so I was actually very moved by that. Um, if uh, you saw any images of the hurricanes in Puerto Rico, you saw a town called Utuado, uh, a mountain town uh, on the island. If you read any articles about the devastation of Puerto Rico, you were reading articles that were written about Utuado. Uh, Utuado was the epicenter of the hurricane. Um, John Lee Anderson, writing in The New Yorker, said that Utuado had become a byword for the island's devastation. 
uh, equivalent to the Lower Ninth Ward in Houston after Katrina. Well, my father, uh, Frank Espada, was born in Tuolo. My grandmother was born in Utuado. My great-grandfather was the mayor of Utuado. So uh, Utuado is really the, the cuña, the cradle of the family for us. And so it was unbearable to watch these images and to read these articles coming from Utuado. Uh, I began to talk to my father about it. Um, the problem is that my father died more than four years ago. And I suppose it's not unusual for people to talk to the dead. Um, but um, I was um, talking specifically to his ashes, which I have in my possession. And that's how this poem came about. Um, it was published in Poetry Magazine in their March issue, for those who might be interested in that. Um, but it is called Letter to My Father, October 2017. You once said... My reward for this life will be a thousand pounds of dirt shoveled in my face. You were wrong. You are seven pounds of ashes in a box, a Puerto Rican flag wrapped around you next to a red brick from the house in Utuado where you were born, all crammed together on my bookshelf. You taught me there is no God, no life after this life, so I know you are not watching me type this letter over my shoulder. When I was a boy, you were God. I watched from the seventh floor of the projects as you walked down into the street to stop a public execution. A big man caught a small man stealing his car, and everyone in Brooklyn heard the car alarm wail of the condemned. He's killing me. At a word from you, the executioner's hand slipped from the hair of the thief. The kid was high, was all you said when you came back to us. When I was a boy, and you were God, we flew to Puerto Rico. You said, my grandfather was the mayor of Utuado. His name was Buenaventura. That means good fortune. I believed in your grandfather's name. I heard the tree frogs chanting to each other all night. I saw a banana leaf and elephant palm sprouting from the mountain's belly. I gnawed the mango's pit, and the sweet yellow hair stuck between my teeth. I said to you, you came from another planet. How did you do it? You said, every morning, just before I woke up, I saw the mountains. Every morning, I see the mountains. Utuado, three sisters, all in their seventies, all bedridden, all Pentecostales, who only left the house for church, lay sleeping on mattresses spread across the floor when the hurricane gutted the mountain the way a butcher slices open a dangled pig, and a rolling wall of mud buried them, leaving the fourth sister to stagger into the street, screaming like an unheeded prophet about the end of the world. In Utuado, a man who cultivated a garden of aguacate and carambola, feeding the avocado and star fruit to his nieces from New York, saw the trees in his garden beheaded all at once like the soldiers of a beaten army, and so hanged himself. Utuado, a welder and a handyman, rigged a pulley with a shopping cart to ferry rice and beans across the river where the bridge collapsed, witnessed the cart swaying above so many hands, then raised a sign that told the helicopters, Campamento Los Olvidados, Camp of the Forgotten. Los Olvidados, 
wait seven hours in line for a government meal of Skittles and Vienna sausage, or a tarp to cover the bones of a house with no roof as the fungus grows in their skin from sleeping on mattresses drenched with the spit of the hurricane. They drink the brown water, waiting for microscopic monsters in their bellies to visit plagues upon them. A nurse says, these people are going to have an epidemic. These people are going to die. The president flips rolls of paper towels to a crowd at a church in Guaynabo, Zeus lobbing thunderbolts on the locked ward of his delusions. Down the block, cousin Ricardo, Bernice's boy, says that somebody stole his can of diesel. I heard somebody ask you once well, Puerto Rico needed to be free, and you said, Tres pulgadas de sangre en la calle, three inches of blood in the street. Now, three inches of mud flow through the streets of Utualo, and troops patrol the town as if guarding the vein of copper in the ground, as if a shovel digging graves in the backyard might strike the ore below, as if La Brigada swinging machetes to clear the road might remember the last uprising. I know you are not God. I have the proof. Seven pounds of ashes in a box on my bookshelf. Gods do not die, and yet I want you to be God again. Stride from the crowd to seize the president's arm before another roll of paper towel sails away. Thunder, Spanish obscenities in his face, banish him to a roofless rainstorm in Utuado, so he unravels one soaked sheet after another till there is nothing left but his cardboard heart. I promised myself I would stop talking to you, white box of gray grit. You were deaf even before you died. Hear my promise now. I will take you to the mountains where houses lost like ships at sea rise blue and yellow from the mud. I will open my hands. I will scatter your ashes in Utwalo. That was Martina Spada reading Letter to My Father. Uh, Martin, can you talk about um, one year after the this is the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria. Uh, what is your analysis of what's happening in Puerto Rico right now? Well, um, the first thing to understand is the dimensions of the disaster. Um, we were told over and over again that the official death toll was 64 people. Um, and then there was a Harvard study that came out not that long ago. Um, estimating the actual death toll as something more than 4,600 people. And that's a conservative estimate according to the study. When we see it that way, we come to understand the degree of the disaster. Um, and uh, in fact, it's the greatest natural disaster in US history. If you include um, Puerto Rico being a colony in the United States in that history. I think if we understand that, the sense of urgency becomes greater because hurricane season is soon upon us. And it's important to understand, no matter what the Puerto Rican government says or what the Trump administration says, that there is still so many people without power, that there are still so many people uh, without uh, housing, without rooftops, um, that the failure of FEMA to provide even the most basic uh, relief continues to haunt that population. 
um, that uh, relief efforts continue almost a year after the hurricane. This is, this is almost unheard of. But relief efforts are ongoing. If people want to support that, those relief efforts, there are many ways to do it. I'm sure it happened here in Brattleboro. Um, it continues to happen in uh, my community. Uh, not too far away from where I live, there's a town called Holyoke which is almost 50% Puerto Rican, and by percentage, the biggest Puerto Rican town in the United States. Relief efforts are ongoing there, and so are resettlement efforts as people uh, uh, either come to this country or uh, the people who have come to this country see their, their vouchers run out so they can no longer stay in hotels, or whatever it might be. So it's, it's, it's a matter of understanding just how bad it was in the first place that may galvanize people to... Uh, to do something. Yeah, in your in your poem, you say um, that you ask your father, I think, what does Puerto Rico need to be free? And he says, three inches of blood in the streets. And he said that. I was so. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you what his meaning was, or what you think Puerto Rico needs to be free? Well, my father was. Uh, a uh, community organizer. He was a civil rights activist. He was a leader, some people would say, the leader of the Puerto Rican community in New York City in the 1960s into the early 70s. And um, he was, by that point in time, uh, embittered. He also knew his history. He knew, for example, that in 1950 something happened called La Masacre del Tualo, La Masacre de Utualo, which is not something you would read in uh, your textbooks, um, but it was part of a larger nationalist uprising in October of 1950 against the United States um, and the, um, uh, the heart and soul of that uprising was, not surprisingly, in the mountains of Puerto Rico, in towns like Lares and Hayuya and Utualo. A number of prisoners were taken in Utualo after the town was bombed by U.S. warplanes. Uh, and these prisoners were marched to the local police station and, and shot dead. So uh, my father was aware of that history. I also reference that history in the same stanza um, when I say that the people with machetes clearing the road might remember the last uprising. What are they doing with those machetes? Well, right now they're doing what um, you know uh, the government failed to do, uh, which was to clear the roads and. Uh, provide other forms of, of material relief. But it's also uh, a reference to a colonial history. U.S. is the old, uh, uh, the United States has colonized Puerto Rico for 120 years. Before that, it was Spain for centuries, the oldest colony in the world. And if you cannot free yourself one way, you have to free yourself another way. That's the essence of what he's saying, although what he's saying is more an expression of, of extreme frustration than anything else, you know. I would prefer to see a peaceful solution to the problem, um, and I would prefer to see Puerto Rico independent, uh, but that independence has to be granted in a way that's humane, in a way that's gradual, in a way that subsidizes uh, the transition, and in a way that recognizes how many Puerto Ricos were taken out of Puerto Rico during the period of U.S. colonization in terms of uh, the exploitation of labor and natural resources or what have you. And so that's the way to think about decolonization. It's happened before with other countries. It could certainly happen with the island. 
So now, uh, Lauren, we're going to ask you to read your first poem. Maybe you could tell us the title and introduce it for us. Sure. Um, this first poem is called In Defense of Poetry. Uh, I've been a teacher for 17 years, and when people found out that I was volunteer teaching at a transitional housing program for homeless women, you would think that a lot of people would think that that was a good thing. But what I was met with oftentimes was confusion as to why I opted to teach poetry. Um, they said, you know, you're an English teacher. Why don't you teach them how to read and write? Why don't you teach them like you would your other students? And um, so this is my response to those people. And it's called, aptly, In Defense of Poetry. To you who say poetry is a waste of 10 homeless mothers' time, that I should correct their grammar and spelling, spit shine their speech so it gleams, make them sound more like me, that I should set a bucket of yes, miss, thank you, whatever you say, miss, on their heads, fill that bucket heavy, tell them how to tiptoe to keep it steady, that I should give them something they can truly use, like diapers, food, or boots. I say, you've never seen these women lower their noses over poetry, as if praying the rosary, as if hoping for a lover to slip his tongue between their lips or sip a thin spring of water from a fountain. Thank you. That was uh, Lauren Schmidt reading her poem. And uh, Lauren, listening to that, I really resonate with that because I have worked for a long time with women in this community um, that are struggling. Uh, I work at a domestic and sexual violence organization here. And I only work a little bit there now, but I did work there for seven years. And there was a time when I was uh, leading a group of women that are in this program that is alternative to incarceration. And I also got a similar thing of questioning what I was, uh, the material that I was bringing in, saying that that reading is too hard or that reading, they, don't, they won't know what that means. Um, I even had someone tell me that the word patriarchy, they may not understand. <laughs> and The irony. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know what that means. Yeah, no exactly. Idea. No so it's interesting hearing that, that, that poem because, um, yeah, I've, I've also experienced that in my own work. Could you talk a little bit more about your work? I know you also worked in Oregon and how that has influenced your poetry. Yeah, my first collection of poems is called Psalms of the Dining Room. Um, I was teaching high school out in Oregon. I moved there sight unseen, actually, uh, when I was about 25 years old. And um, I was teaching high school out there, and I found uh, right around the corner from where I lived a, a family meals program, they called it. They didn't call it a soup kitchen. Um, and the motto of the place was called Dining with Dignity. And I ended up volunteering there. I started there once a week um, or once every other week. And then it was once a week. And then it was twice a week. Um, and I was at the same time pursuing my MFA at a low residency MFA program in Antioch University, which has a social justice component, actually. So I felt like what I was studying and the values that my program was trying to impart to us was manifesting itself quite naturally in my, in my volunteer work, in my teaching, uh, and as well as my poetry. Um, and it started with a poem that took me about I don't know, six or seven months to write. I had written a draft of the, I can read it if you like. Um, I written a draft of this poem called Manny, and it went really, really badly. And I think I was too much in my head worrying about exploiting the people who 
you know, whose needs were being met there, exploiting the people I served every week, um, people I had grown to really care about. And I was really self-conscious about, like, who am I to say anything on behalf of these people? But um, it was only in turning to other poets, certainly like Martina Spada, but others as well, and then I realized that this has been going on, that I'm part of a writer's tradition, and that it's more than okay, it's absolutely necessary. So if you don't yeah, mind, great. I'll read that poem. We'd love to hear that. The poem is called Manny, and it's dedicated to Manny. Manny got a job today. After nine months of pushing peas around his plate, eyes he could not bear to lift, Manny got a job today. Then this could be the day the burns on Berta's arms iron out and tighten, the day her butterfly fingers separate from the cocoon of cells that swathes them. This could be the day she pulls her shirt over her shoulder, lengthens her limb through the sleeve with ease, extends the crook, fused in a melted web of skin, so she no longer smuggles her arm in the belly of her shirt as if to soothe an ache. This could be the day the rot in Rico's leg dries its vast jungle, the day the claw of red-ripped skin releases its grip in the heart-shaped carve of his calf, the day his cane is used for dancing. This could be the day the scourge of sores on Selena's lips seals shut, the day the yellow-green scabs flake away and her moldy breath sweetens. This could be the day the fear coiled in Doyle's mind lifts like smoke rings and fades, the day he forgets his wife's bones he put above a fire. This could be the day Jay's machine gun gibberish becomes prayer or poetry, praise or warning, the day the tank in his throat cranks its belts into the soft pulses of a baritone, the day he learns to sing. This could be the day the scar that halves Marva's face unzips, the day her albino eye flushes its gray and glimmers warm with brown and sight again, the day the right side of her face sits on the throne of her skull, the day the Z in her spine straightens. This could be the day the spectacle of Kenneth's gender is quelled, the day she learns to carry asymmetric breasts and pack away her penis, the day God is merciful and stuffs him into the purse of a body he was not born into but wears around his shoulder. This could be the day everyone lifts their glasses, Manny got a job today, the day silver stays in drawers and napkins folded away, the day there's more than enough for seconds, Manny got a job today. The day the doors are boarded up, the day the clothes sign is hung, Manny got a job today. Yes, Manny got a job today. Thank you. And if you're just joining us, this is Indigo Radio, and that was Lauren Marie Schmidt reading from Psalms from the dining room table. Um, of the dining room table. It's <laughs> Psalms of the dining room table. And she's also the author of uh, Filthy Labors, her latest collection of poetry. And we are also joined by, by Martina Spada, um, award-winning poet. And we would like to ask, this is for both of you. Uh, Martina, I saw you in a Democracy Now! interview uh, earlier in the year. And you said, this is a quote, resistance was as natural as breathing. And you were talking about um, your family and how that had influenced you. Um, and you were surprised that others were not raised like that. Um, and the question that we have as teachers is how do you, and, and Lauren, you can also respond to this, bring resistance into your teaching? Well, I suppose it depends on how you define resistance. Um, I think resistance happens all around us. And one of the first ways we bring resistance into the classroom or into your teaching is to define resistance for your students and point out the ways in which it's already happening. The way it's happening for them, or the way it's happening in their families. 
because resistance is a matter of marching in the streets, but it's also a matter of asserting your human dignity on an individual level. There are small gestures of rebellion every day that we engage in, whether we're teachers or we're students. That's resistance, too. Um, it's also, I think, imperative to point out you know, who the enemy is. And sometimes that's uh, very subtle and hard to determine. Other times, not so much, you know, with the, uh, the lunatic frothing in the White House at this point in time. Um, but uh, there, there are many ways to do it. And one obvious way to do it, something that we have been gesturing towards in this conversation, is through poetry. I think you can bring poetry into any classroom. I think you bring it into a math class. I think you can bring it into a science class. You could certainly bring it into an English class mm-hmm. uh, or an education class. Anything. It goes anywhere. Uh, poetry is portable. It has wings. It flies. So for people, and, and the other thing is I think most poets would be grateful just to know that their work is being uh, put to good use. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for example, uh, although I prefer people always, I want my books to be to be purchased. I understand many times that's an impossibility. So feel free to Xerox. I hereby grant permission. (laughs) You heard it on Indigo Radio. (laughs) Yeah. Xerox my book, smash copyright laws. Anything to get those poems into the right hands. Well, and we have, uh, I know both Kelly and I have used some of your poems in our teaching. And I teach public health and have brought poetry into public health. Because I agree with you that it can be used in, in many different ways. Yeah, I read one of your poems at a wedding. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, now I have to ask which poem it was. Uh, Soldiers in the Garden. Okay. So you, you read a poem about the coup in Chile? I did. I, well, <laughs> so I, I was looking for poetry to read um, since I was part of officiating this wedding. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I was looking through some of your poetry, and I, I read that one, and it, it did speak to me. And... Um, to me, it related to the couple who were getting married because of their uh, commitment to resistance and thinking about others who um, are daily dealing with soldiers in occupation and having to hold those people in our minds as we move forward in the world. And did the marriage last? Yeah, yes. <laughs> okay, because when I do that, it's the kiss of death. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've been, I've been, quote, best man a few times, and <laughs> marriage dissolved an hour later. But uh, I, you know, I know Lauren has a lot to say on this subject, too. For me, teaching is the most political thing I can do in my skill set. Um, just by virtue of the students that I teach, I often teach um, students with lower literacy levels. I taught adult literacy for a few years. I volu- you know, I've done volunteer work, things like that. I volunteered at a um, drug and alcohol rehab center where I taught men, illiterate men. Um, I taught poetry there as well. So it's, I do it as a profession, but I also do it as part of just who I am. It's an extension of who I am. And I think that once we raise literacy levels, we raise confidence, we raise a better understanding of how they can move in the world in a way that they're defended against the things that are threatening them. Um, I don't know. Teaching is more than just what I do. It's a lot of who I am. Uh, Martine, we were wondering if you could read uh, another one of your poems right now. I have just the thing. (laughs) We're talking about uh, teaching 
and the commitment to teaching and how often uh, we forget just how deep a commitment that must be if you're a teacher in um, an urban area, if you're a teacher for low-income people, if you're a teacher for people of color. Um, and this next poem is really about that. It's a, it's a, it's a tribute to that, uh, that powerful sense of dedication. Um, and uh, it's a new poem. It happens, by sheer coincidence, to be a poem I wrote about Lauren. Um, and um, you may be familiar with the Obad as a form. The Obad is a poem um, uh, about lovers parting at dawn. Um, and so, um, true story, all of it. This is called Obad with Concussion. Epigraph. Poverty is black ice. Naomi Ajala. You leave me sleeping in the dark. You kiss me, and I stir, fingers in your hair, eyes open, unseeing. You leave me asleep every morning, commuting to the school in the city at sunrise. The landlord's driveway, a muddy creek, ices over hard after the freezing rain clatters all night. Your feet fly up, your head slamming the ground, an eclipse of the sun flooding your eyes. You sleep under the car. No one knows how long you sleep. You awake with a hundred ice picks stabbing your eardrums. You awake, coat and hair soaked, and somehow drive to school. You remember to turn left at the Smith and Wesson factory. The other teachers lead you by the elbow to Mercy Hospital, where you pause when the nurse asks your name, where you claim your pain level is a four, and they slide you into the white coffin of an MRI machine. You hold your breath. They film your brain. Concussion. The word we use for the boxer plunging face first to the canvas after the uppercut blindsided him, not the teacher commuting to school at sunrise in a Subaru cross-trek. Yet you would drive, ears hammering as they hammer in the purgatory of the MRI. A week before, Isabella came to you in the classroom and said, Miss, I cannot sleep. Three days, I cannot sleep. Her boyfriend called at 2 a.m. and she did not pick up. At 3 a.m., a single shot to the head put him to sleep and he will sleep forever. His body rolled beneath a car in a parking lot on Maple Street. The cops, the television cameras, the neighbors all gathering at the yellow tape carnival of his corpse. You said to Isabella, Take this journal. Write it down. You don't have to show me. You don't have to show anyone. On the cover of the journal you bought at the drugstore was the word dream. Isabella sat there in your classroom at your desk, pencil waving in furious circles. By lunchtime, as her friends slapped each other, Isabella slept, head on the desk, face 
pressed against the pages of the journal. This is why I watch you sleep at 3 a.m. when the sleeping pills fail to quell the strike meeting in my brain. This is why I say to you when you kiss me in my sleep, Don't go. Don't go. You have to go. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, this is Indigo Radio, and that was Martina Spada with Abad with Concussion. Um, so we were talking a little bit earlier with you guys about, um, Lauren, you teach in Springfield, mm-hmm. and um, talking a little bit about the conditions in Springfield, Massachusetts, right? Um, thinking about racial disparities and poverty, and also thinking about the casino that's coming in, Um and what's that, what that is doing to the community. And so I was wondering if you could talk about these things and the realities, how these things manifest in your school. Well, last year was my first year at Bay State Academy, so I'm still learning a little bit about the community. What I know is that the vast majority of my students um, and actually the community in general are really against the whole casino thing, mostly because it's been going on for years and years and it hasn't manifested yet. It will apparently. It's supposed to be in the fall of next year, I think. Um, and it's supposed to be bringing jobs and, and building up the economy there. But I would say that the families who live there aren't interested in working a casino job and they want more for themselves. Um, what I see most in my students is a level of apathy that has yet been unfamiliar to me in all of my years of teaching. And that really makes me scared because I don't think they quite understand, um, or maybe they do, which is why they have the apathy that they have. They don't, they don't really possess any desire to move beyond their circumstances. I think that they have resigned themselves as young as they are to accept that um, the limitations of where they live and some of the things that they deal with Uh, drugs, poverty, crime, um, is really what their lives will look like forever. Um, And they don't often understand, as much as I try, to see the relationship between literacy and getting out of those circumstances. So um, I've made really good progress, I think. I had uh, freshmen last year, I have seniors next year, and I think that they're starting to see the ways in which an education does open doors, but um, I think their experiences in education haven't been very good, and it's shaped an attitude towards not only teachers specifically, but adults in general, that um, they're difficult people to trust. And so a lot of what I'm doing there is earning their trust, I think I spend about half the year trying to show them that I have the best of intentions for you and I want to serve you and I want to help you. Um, We got there, but it took a really long time. Um, So I think that Springfield is undergoing a lot of changes right now, but it has been, and I'm not sure that we're seeing a light at any end of a tunnel. Thank you for that. And uh, the poem that Martine just read Mm -hmm. for you and, and for Springfield just made me think so much about... Uh, the way that teachers and students' lives are intertwined and that teachers play so many different roles. And I teach undergraduates at UMass, and oftentimes I'm a graduate student, and oftentimes we find, the other graduate students find, that the undergrads are coming to us for a lot of needs, um, emotional needs, and come and talk to us. And so I also find myself in different roles, and I know Kelly would say the same thing, um, working here in Brattleboro. Uh, we would love for you to read another poem, if you have one ready sure. for us. Sure. Um, I think the next poem that I'll read 
is it's based on an actual experience I had with one of the social workers at the what I'm calling the Haven House. Um, I changed the name just for what are obvious reasons, I think. Um, earlier, I spoke about how I think giving them poetry, giving the mothers poetry, and giving them an opportunity to engage in critical thinking and writing and creativity, it gives them a level of dignity that I think few other things in the world can provide. Um, and I, I know it worked because the social workers didn't like me very much. Uh, they said that there had been a lot of tension between the women who live there and the staff. Um, but when I got there, they said it got worse. And I think that that's a good thing because I, what really that meant was that the women started to talk back a little bit. And maybe that's not the greatest idea, but the, the whole notion of them feeling like they could speak for themselves and that they knew what was best for them um, is something that I think they got from poetry. I went there thinking that it would just be kind of a fun little workshop thing, but towards the end of the two and a half years that I served there, um, the women started calling it class, which is funny because I went there thinking, like, I don't want this to feel like school for them. I want this to be a safe, creative space for them. But in their eyes, in their estimation, calling it class was a way of elevating the experience that they had. And we did eventually sort of move in and out of the model that I had originally started with them, which is just a generative workshop where I'd bring poetry prompts and things like that. Um, but later we started reading short stories, articles. Sometimes we, uh, we read plays, we watched plays. I took them to plays. So it really ended up being more of like a hodgepodge of things, but they got something out of it. And um, this is based on an actual experience that I had with one of the social workers who was none too pleased with that result. It's called The Social Worker's Advice. Jabbing a finger at my face, you say. You can't have empathy. Empathy will eat you alive, as if empathy were a beast with feathers, fur, and hair, with hind legs and deft feet, wings and claws, a beast that soars, stalks, lunges, springs. A beast that chases. A beast that screams instead of sings. With giant jaws and a tongue butted with a rapacious taste for fools like me. Fools who don't believe the beast exists to eat. Who let it burrow its snout between our legs, fingers, up to our armpits. The spaces of our common human stink. But you see a beast that sniffs and snarls for a thick blue vein to sick. And when I look at you, I understand the beast more plainly. I see that its skin collects pockmarks each time you dock merit points to teach the mothers not to talk black. I see that its fingers sprout a thousand of your scornful eyes, its claws slash as swift and deep as your condescension. Because what you mean is that I can't have empathy for these girls, for times like these, for a place like this, for Nicole, who sallies the number of days it's been since she last flushed her veins with a spoon-cooked mix, 28 days and counting. No empathy for Nicole because she can never seem to find matching socks for her four-year-old son, or because she folds flowers from twice-used computer paper to calm her nerves. Bouquets of paper daisies sprout from vases on all four tables in the dining room. What you mean is that I can't have empathy for Takina, who was told to go by Tina because her white adoptive mother, middle-aged, middle-class, prefers it. Her birth mother is five years gone, and Tina, Takina, thinks she might be pregnant again. I can't have empathy for Denise, who was pregnant with her third, but didn't know until she was too far in. For Angelica, who fell down the stairs while holding her infant son, too spent from pre-sun feedings and weeping in the wee hours as minutes lurched by. 
Each tick-tock is the sound of the deadlocked door of the nighttime aide, who snores in the small room near the exit like a beast at the gates, preventing escape from this place, this time, from lives like these, without signing a release form for the Division of Youth and Family Services, like Diana, who took her two kids to a hotel, where alone at night she stares at the ceiling holes and the red glow of the word vacancy flashing through windows with no curtains. I can't have empathy for Lakita, so thin that when she aims her breast at her baby's lips, she prays she has something wet and real to give. When you say with your wagging finger, you can't have empathy, empathy will eat you alive. What you mean is that I can't have empathy for these girls. And when I look at you, I cannot help but wonder when you first believed empathy would do more than sniff and lick your palms. So I say, let it take me then, this beast of your invention. Let it slip its fangs into my skin and tear through my throat. Let it suck all the fat and blood from off my solid bones. That was Lauren Marie Schmidt you were listening to, reading from Filthy Labors. Uh, Martine, we would like to ask you, last week we did a show, actually Corey was on the show, talking about the Amazon workers and strikes. And... One of my favorite things from you is your letter to Nike (laughs) and uh, where you rejected their request uh, to write a a poem for them. And you are also known as the people's poet. And I would love to to hear you talk about what that means to you. And you've done you've written many poems on workers. Yes. um, Well, first of all. Um, everything you've heard about me and Nike is true. <laughs> we do not have a good relationship. Um, and what they were actually seeking is um, for uh, me to write um, a poem that would then be turned into a, uh, a commercial. And I was one of uh, a number of poets who were approached for what they call the Nike Poetry Slam and I, I wrote them a, a rather sardonic letter that made the rounds. And, Actually, I have uh, it. Can I just read a, a quote from it? Sure. For, my, for the listeners out there. <laughs> you say, I could reject your offer based on the fact that to make this offer to me in the first place, you must be totally and insultingly ignorant of my work as a poet, which strives to stand against all that you and your client represent. Whoever referred me to you did a grave disservice. I could reject your offer based on the fact that your client, Nike, has, through commercials such as these, outrageously manipulated the youth market so that even low-income adolescents are compelled to buy products that they do not need at prices they cannot afford. Ultimately, however, I am rejecting your offer as a protest against the brutal labor practices of Nike. I will not associate myself with a company that engages in the well-documented exploitation of workers in sweatshops. (laughs) Yes, I said that. Um, And indeed, I have uh, written a number of poems about work, um, if for no other reason that I've had every job you could possibly imagine. Um, I was uh, a bouncer in a bar. Uh, At one time I weighed over 300 pounds. I was well qualified. Um, I was a a night desk clerk in a transient hotel. Um, I worked in a primate laboratory taking care of baby monkeys. Uh, I'm the only poet you'll ever meet who's been bitten by a monkey. 
Um, and you're a tenant lawyer. I yeah? was indeed a tenant lawyer. And um, I'd like to read a poem that speaks to issues of labor um, and that reflects not only upon my law school experience, but another experience too. Um, I went to Northeastern University Law School in Boston. But many years before that, I, um, I worked at a printing plant and I made legal pads by hand. So you can imagine when I found myself low these many years later in law school, surrounded by a sea of legal pads and people who had no idea how they got made. In point of fact, most of us wander through the day without any awareness of how anything gets made. Uh, how the objects for our everyday use uh, happen to be created, the uh, sweat or the skill that goes into that. Um, and so this is the poem that speaks to uh, these experiences and, uh, and these issues. Uh, it's called Who Burns for the Perfection of Paper? At 16, I worked after high school hours at a printing plant that manufactured legal pads. Yellow paper stacked seven feet high and leaning as I slipped cardboard between the pages, then brushed red glue up and down the stack. No gloves. Fingertips required for the perfection of paper, smoothing the exact rectangle. Sluggish by 9 p.m., the hands would slide along suddenly sharp paper and gather slits thinner than the crevices of the skin, hidden. Then the glue would sting, hands oozing till both palms burned at the punch clock. Ten years later, in law school, I knew that every legal pad was glued with the sting of hidden cuts, that every open law book was a pair of hands upturned and burning. So that was Martina Spada reading, sorry. I was called Who Burns for the Perfection of Paper? It's from a collection called Alavanza. Uh, you're listening to Indigo Radio. Uh, we're going to go um, have a quick message from our uh, local sponsors, and we will be right back with Martina Spada and Lauren Marie Schmidt. Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. And we're back. This is Indigo Radio. And we are joined in the studio by Martina Spada and Lauren Marie Schmidt, both award-winning poets. Uh, again, we thank you so much for being here with us. And uh, we have a question about art. Uh, Kelly's going to read a quote in a minute. And Kelly and I, when we were preparing for this show, we are talking about uh, is all art political? And I think I was saying something like, oh, I really hate when I go to a museum and see something that I think is so boring and has nothing to do with anything. 
<laughs> and it, there's so much going on in the world and art should say something. And then I think Kelly was responding that that is also political in a way. So, well, that that art took, I mean, I think about what you were just saying, Martine, somebody manufactured those paints, somebody made that canvas. Um, they were shipped here, they were sold in a store, and then somebody took the time to make a piece of art that didn't change or challenge anything. Um, and I was, it made me think about the Bertolt Brecht quote, art is not a mirror held up to reality, but a hammer with which to shape it. And so we're, we're not totally sure, totally clear, but we're wondering what your guys' thoughts are on whether, whether all art is political. I'm not sure all art is political. I think art should, in the very best case scenario, have something to say. Um, I'll stick to poetry because I'm a poet, but there's a lot of poetry out there that really says nothing, means nothing, cares about nothing, um, and that's not poetry that I particularly like. Um, there's many poets who write because they want to feel clever and they don't really make sense, and then they slap a political title on it and they think that's politics, and they think that that's um, making some kind of social statement. And I'm just not really interested in that. I think you can tell from both Martine's aesthetic and my aesthetic is that we mean to communicate, so we use the narrative oftentimes um, to tell stories and let the stories speak for themselves so that they can make their own political statement. Um, and I think acts, no matter how small, can be political. And um, the poem that I'll close with, if that's okay, uh, is really about that. So this one is from Psalms of the Dining Room. And a lot of the work that I did, in addition to actually serving the meals at the end of the day, was food preparation or cleaning and things like that. Um, so this poem is called Far From Butter, and it speaks on this theme, this idea that um, even the tiniest acts can be political. Far From Butter. I scrub my hands clean three times. Antiseptic soap stings my fingers. It stick burns my eyes and they water. I stand behind the waist-high table in the kitchen with offerings of butter. Half-frozen sticks of must-be-used-today butter. Stacked sticks of unfit-for-sale butter. This evening, I must cut them into even pats, each the width of a nickel, one pat per visitor. The butter is so cold that I must lean my weight on the spine of a meat cleaver to force the blade through till it touches the table. A deep ridge forms across my palms like a lash mark. Looking at my hands, pink and swollen, it is clear that I lack the strength to cut through this wealth of refrigerated butter, much less the strength to make it. I lack the patience to wait for milk and cream to pull their bodies apart from their emulsive embrace so the cream can rest on top. I lack the precision it takes to skim that thick collection at the hem where cream and milk meet. My forearms are too slight to press into the belly of that wad of fat for it to release its milk. I don't have the shoulders to churn that butter or the hands to give it its texture. It is only in feeling a bar begin to melt beneath my warm grip like a muscle grown weak that I realize how far I am from butter, the work it takes to make that butter, the kind of work that is holy like butter. Not water into wine work, but real work, hard work, work we can be grateful exists, if for no other reason than the joy that comes when it's done. I want to taste that holiness, so I pull a pat of nickel-thick butter stuck to the flat edge of the blade and drop it on my tongue. I push it to the roof of my mouth at the seam of teeth and gum and wait for it to melt to tell me that I know nothing of how to suffer. So that was Lauren Marie Schmidt reading her poem, Far From Butter. Martine, do you want to uh, speak to the, or uh, share your thoughts about art being political or not? 
Well, that could be a whole semester. <laughs> um, no, art, not all art is political by any stretch of the imagination. I think if you say that all art is political, then you're defining political so broadly that the term loses its meaning. Um, at some point, we have to sharpen the focus of our definition. I do think all art is the product of political choices and that artists, writers, what have you, choose uh, to be political or not. Um, some of us feel as if we never really had a choice. We were born into that struggle. I feel that way, certainly. Um, I'm going to close with a poem that I mentioned uh, when we spoke before. Um, and uh, this is a new poem. You could call it my Trump poem. Uh, and the way I feel about this poem is that if uh, it changes one mind, if it motivates or moves anyone to vote in those midterm elections where otherwise they wouldn't, then this poem will have done its job as political art. And I'll let the poem speak for itself. It's about the first hate crime committed in the name of Donald Trump, uh, which was committed not in Texas, but in Boston, Massachusetts. And that was, uh, it was against a Latino man, is that correct? A homeless Mexican immigrant, yes. This is called Not For Him, The Fiery Lake of the False Prophet Epigraph. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Donald Trump, June 16, 2015. They woke him up by pissing in his face. He opened his mouth to scream in Spanish, so his mouth became a urinal at the ballpark. Scott and Steve, the leader brothers, celebrating a night at Fenway, where the Sox beat the Indians and a rookie named Rodriguez spun the seams on his change-up to hypnotize the tribe. Later that night, Steve urinated on the door of his cell, and Scott told the cops why they did it. Donald Trump is right. All these illegals need to be deported. He was a Mexican in a sleeping bag outside JFK Station on a night in August, so they called him a wetback and emptied their bladders in his hair. In court, the lawyer spoke his name, Guillermo Rodriguez, immigrant with papers, crop picker in the fields, trader of bottles and cans collected in his cart. Two strangers squashed the cartilage in his nose like a can drained of beer. In dreams, he would remember the shoes digging into his ribcage, the pole raked repeatedly across his cheekbones and upraised knuckles, the high five over his body. Donald Trump is right, said Scott. And Trump said, the people who are following me are very passionate. His hands fluttered as he spoke, a demagogue's hands, no blood under the fingernails, no whiff of urine to scrub away. He would orchestrate the chant to build that wall at rally after rally, bellowing till the blood rushed to his face, red as a demagogue in the grip of masturbatory dreams. A tribute to the new conquistador, the wall raised up by Mexican hands, Mexican hair and fingernails bristling in the brick, Mexican blood swirling in the cement like raspberry syrup on a vanilla sundae. 
On the Cinco de Mayo, he leered over a taco bowl at Trump Tower. Not for him, the fiery lake of the false prophet reddening his ruddy face. Not for him, the devils of Puritan imagination shrieking in a foreign tongue and climbing in the window like the immigrant demons he conjures for the crowd. Not even for him, Ten thousand years of the leader brothers streaming a fountain of piss in his face as he sputters forever. For him, hell is a country where the man in a hard hat paving the road to JFK station sees Guillermo and dials 911. Hell is a country where EMTs kneel to wrap a blanket around the shivering shoulders of Guillermo and wipe his face clean. Hell is a country where the nurse at the emergency room hangs a morphine drip for Guillermo so he can go back to sleep. Two thousand miles away, someone leaves a trail of water bottles in the desert for the border crossing of the next Guillermo. We smuggle ourselves across the border of a demagogue's dreams. Confederate generals on horseback tumble one by one into the fiery lake of false prophets, into the fiery lake crumbles the demolished wall. Thousands stand sledgehammers in hand to await the bullhorns and handcuffs, await the trembling revolvers. In the full moon of the flashlight, every face interrogates the interrogator. In the full moon of the flashlight, every face is the face of Guillermo. That was Martin Espada that you were listening to, reading his poem, Not For Him, The Fiery Lake of the False Prophet, about the first hate crime in the name of Trump. We need to wrap up here. We want to thank um, Martin and Lauren, two award-winning poets with us for the hour. Thank you so much. It was such an honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming all the way up to Brattleboro. Next show, just real quick, um, next week we're going to be, it's the commemoration of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we'll be having a discussion around that with Nina and Chris. And so we are going to close with um, Climbing Poetry's Heart-Led Rebellion. Thanks for listening. Por más guerra que nos echen, más golpe que nos peguen, más abierta está esta mente para combatir la destrucción, aunque nos llenen de mentira. Con hambre queda el alma silenciosa la violencia. Por eso es que se canta, que sigan disparando el movimiento no se mata. Nacimos en la noche, crecimos en la palma, somos humo de la boca de un ancestro va flotando, somos manos sanadoras, sonrisas escondidas donde balas hacen sonas. Somos peyotes, somos coyotes, somos estrellas. Somos guerras sin banderas, somos máquinas, somos lágrimas We are beautiful, we're irrefutable We are omnipotent, we're militant, resilient, we're autonomous We are the consequence, we are consciousness We are the heartbeat of every freedom fighter who came before us And all will come after Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving We've been rising since the dawn of creation in the blood of our veins, liberation runs From Muhammad Ali to Sunniata and Asada Nugareta Menchu and Kruma to Zapata Mahatma Gandhi, Iko Madre's daughters And every activist of the global intifada From lunch counter sit-ins to million-man marches Underground railroads, demonstrations, desert crossings Bodies on the line, stopping Amazon logging Mangari's free by movement to community gardens Much love to the legacy of Harriet Tubman Alive